Yo, welcome to the Talking to Ourselves podcast. I'm Omid Farhang, founder and CEO at Majority. My guest today, Alex Lopez, president and global creative chairman at McCann World Group as of 2021. Before that, Alex spent 23 years at Nike, where he became one of the most accomplished and awarded creative storytellers of our generation. Pick any of your favorite Nike campaigns of the past two decades, chances are you'll find Alex's fingerprints, including on the now legendary Dream Crazy campaign starring Colin Kaepernick. Alex also led efforts to launch new sports categories like Nike skateboarding, the brand's launch into digital sport via the Fuel Band, and most recently, Nike's foray into long-form content with Waffle Iron Entertainment. Alex has won every significant creative marketing award, including an Emmy, seven Can Grand Prix, the DNAD Black Pencil, one show brand of the year, and literally hundreds of other awards. His work is in the permanent collection of the Museum Modern Art in New York City. His move from creatively running a global brand to creatively running a global network is unprecedented. This is Alex Lopez and I talking to ourselves. All right. Well, Alex, the last time I saw you in person, it was 2019. We were in Cannes together collecting a Grand Prix for a Nike activation called The Church. For me, it was a career highlight. For you, I think it's like just another Tuesday. It was not a big deal. Yeah, we collected it together. <laughs> no, it was it was great. I think for me, it was it was a it was great to be able to to win that together. It, and uh, obviously, our you know um, your team at, at at your former agency at the time, and uh, and obviously my team at my former employer. Uh, I, I think it's always great to be able to celebrate the work. Uh, and you know we. That year was was a really really fun year for for us. Um, but yeah, it was it was great to just be able to spend the time together and uh, walk on stage together, and then you know go have a drink uh, uh, prior to that, and then after that. Yes, sir. All right, let's take it all the way back to the beginning. Alex Lopez, where are you from, and what did your parents do? I am from. I was born in Long Beach, California, uh, which is a little. Uh, suburb uh south of uh south of los angeles um my parents um so my parents immigrated from mexico right before i was born um just before i was born my um you know my dad worked um as a mechanic custodian doing you know a handful of different things here and there um my mom was uh, was a stay-at-home mom she uh when my parents split, uh, she ended up uh, going and, and working housekeeper, nanny, things like that to essentially kind of help to, to, to raise us. So single mother raising, raising three kids, uh, doing that was, uh, was, was not easy work, uh, but I am uh, incredibly blessed by her, uh, her having done that. Siblings, brother, sister, where do you fall? I am the oldest of three, uh, three kids. All right, cool. Yeah, my, my brother is a year and a half younger. And my sister is, I think, six years younger. Um, I always ask people what they wanted to be when they were 12 years old. I've never seen you without a Dodger cap. I'm going to go ahead and assume you wanted to be Fernando Valenzuela when you grew up, but you correct me if I'm wrong. You know what? I do love Fernando. Um, I I remember seeing him uh, seeing him as a as a kid. Uh, I also remember you know watching Oral Hershiser pitch. Um, but you know what? At that time, 11, 12, like you know when I I think every, you know, most kids probably wanted to be a, a professional athlete at some point. Um, but you know, 
growing up, I didn't really have any like diehard thing. So I've got a little two, two and a half year old son. And he says, uh, you know, right now, he, even he's like, yeah, I want to be a firefighter and an artist. Uh, and at two and a half, I'm like, how did you even come up with that? But, uh, but I love it. I don't know if I ever had that. Um, and I think maybe part of it is just, you know, um, growing up kind of, you know, where I did, how I did, you know, and a little bit of maybe like struggling to survive. I, I don't know that I was kind of looking that far out into the future versus just like, how do we make it through to the, to the end of the day? How do we make it through to the end of the week? How do we make it through alive? Yeah. When you grow up worrying about money, the ambition is just to grow up and not worry about money. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. It's so true. And I, I think for me, it's, um, you know, also I grew up, you know, I grew up on the East side of LA. I grew up, you know, gangs, all of that type of stuff. So it was just, it was a different type of different type of reality that you were living in. So you know, the, the notion of even going to college, the notion of graduating high school, none of those things actually were like, were things that people, you know, took for granted that, you know, I think you grow up nowadays and, and I think about my kid and I go, oh yeah, well, he's going to go to high school. He's going to go to college. He's going to go do this, go do that. And, you know, those were never part of the conversation, you know, when I was growing up. So I think for me, even that was just such a, such a different take. Forget the armchair psychoanalysis, but do you wear the Dodger hat every day as a way to remember where you came from? Despite yeah. you've seen, you've been to some heights, man. You've been in, you've been in some rooms with some very powerful people on the most famous athletes and celebrities in the world. That that hat reminds you where you're from. For sure, uh, it, it, I think there's a. It, it certainly does. I think for me, the I also try and make sure that I don't ever forget where I'm from. I don't ever forget what got me to, to where I'm at and that I also have know that I have to be myself, be my authentic self, uh, because there's other people who may look and go like, OK, well, you know, he's there. He's doing it his way. He's, you know, real about who he is and, and um, you know, and what he's gone through. And someone else may see themselves and, and be like, OK, cool. Like, I don't have to conform to this. I don't have to fit in this little box. I don't have to do those little things. And I think we probably now take that for granted a little bit, but that was huge. That was huge for me. That was, you know, that was something that, that I couldn't look at someone and go, oh yeah, that person did it. So I'm going to be able to kind of walk in their career path. So listen, we're going to talk about your new chapter at McCann, but you know, over the last 23 years, you've been responsible for, Nike campaigns that have, well, one, been the reason I wanted to be in advertising, and two, been the reason I'm proud to tell people I'm in advertising, and three, are the inspiration for me to do better advertising. So I, I'm going to ask you to indulge me a little bit here. Yeah, of course. Of course. All right. All right. So, so I guess, first of all, before you ever even worked at Nike, as you start making your way into your teenage years, was there a Nike campaign in particular that you looked at and said, man, you know, if I may be so bold, I want to do that for a living someday. Yeah, um, I remember. I remember heritage. I remember, um, and people would, you know, would be like, "What the fuck is heritage?" Uh, it was a, it was a spot for. I mean, and you know, and and kind of, I can go back and start to remember, um, like revolution and things like that. But really, like heritage was. Um, was one of those where I remember the the you know, the, the runner kind of running against, you know, in the middle of the night, the backdrop of the, of 
the brick wall and the you know Kirk Gibson, LA Dodgers being reflected on the on on one of those walls. You know all of these sports, um, um, you know sports moments and sports icons kind of being reflected. Um, I remember that vividly, uh, but probably more importantly, more kind of more more imprinted in me was uh, Spike and Mike. I think for me, Spike and Mike is just one of those things where I remember. Um, I remember what that looked like. I remember what that sounded like. I remember what that felt like. Uh, that was one of those things for me where I was very, very young. I'm like, man, imagine what it would be like to like make that. I'm like, I don't think anyone actually really does that, you know, does that, but I don't know how that stuff comes to life. I just think that that's really cool. Um, and I think obviously very full circle and we'll probably chat about that a little bit, but I think again, for me, like that, you know, Spike and Mike and the Jordan work and things like heritage, um, you know, really were kind of imprints on me in terms of, of, uh, of, of creative storytelling. All right. Now the year is 1998 at the top of the billboard charts, the boy is mine by Monica and young Alex Lopez has just gotten a job as advertising manager at Nike. What do you remember about applying, interviewing, getting that first foot in the door at Nike in 1998? Yeah, it's actually, well, the, the, the first foot in the door was actually 1997. So um, I kind of what we were just talking about, I had never thought that I would uh, um, go to college. Like that was never a, a thing. Um, but I, I was playing football and uh, was like, all right, well, you know, if I, if I ever wanted to play football beyond just high school, I have to figure out how to get my grades up. I, you know, I was, I don't want to say smart, but like I, I, I figured the stuff out. Uh, I just didn't care enough. Um, and my guidance counselor told me that if I was really good, if I really focused myself, I could maybe be a good uh, art, uh, car mechanic when I grew up. Uh, and in maybe vintage uh, Alex fashion, I told her to go fuck herself. Uh, and I use that as my motivation to, to go and prove her wrong. Uh, got my grades up, got the, got the chance to, to go to Pepperdine. Clearly football was not going to be for me. Um, I got hurt at some point and that kind of, you know, sent that all to shit. But um, I, I went to Pepperdine. I um, wanted to study um, orthopedic medicine because, again, I had hurt my, myself and doctors helped um, Kind of put me together. I know I love the idea of how you could be in the world of sports and still do something. Uh, and so for me, it was like I was going through and I was reading the course book when I realized that there was math involved and I wasn't going to be able to to do uh, pre med. Uh, and so I saw that advertising was a was a something that you could study. So I was like, well, I never actually realized that you could do that as a job or or something. So I decided to go and check it out, and and I did. Uh, you know, I I was loving it. Um, I got an internship uh, at Saatchi um, down in LA to work on MGM motion pictures, uh, which was really cool. Again, movie account, being able to kind of work in that space. I had won an award and went to Chicago, uh, went to go uh, to, to the award ceremony, what have you, and started talking with someone. Uh, and it turned out that they were a recruiter for Nike. Uh, and they're like, hey, you know what? You, um, you know, would you ever be interested in doing a, um, doing an internship at Nike? I'm like, man, of course I would, you know, that's my dream job, you know, to do, you know, to do advertising for Nike. 
but I've got this great gig at Saatchi. I was able to find a way to kind of extend a summer internship into a, into a gig, you know, I was finding a way to hustle through it. Uh, and then uh, we lost our account like two weeks later. So I, I you know, maybe it was fortuitous. Uh, I picked up the phone and I called her, uh, Ann Schmidt was her name. I remember her vividly. Um, I picked up the phone and I called Ann and I said, hey, if the opportunity's there, I would love to. I went and met someone uh, who was in town filming a gentleman by the name of Greg Johnson, who was a still is a, a mentor and a, a person who means the world to me. Hardest interview I ever had in my life to this day uh, was with Greg. And yet they found a way to, you know, he was, you know, he's like, yep, I want, I want Alex to join. I want for him to work with me. So I went and did an internship at, at Nike uh, over that summer, the summer of 97. I got a chance to work with Greg on things like uh, CEO Jordan. And, you know, he, he was doing basketball that went to go be the marketing director for Jordan. Um, he, you know, I left, uh, I went to go do, uh, to go work at Ogilvy. And then I got a call from Chris Zimmerman, who was our, um, you know, the head of the, of the department, essentially kind of what I ultimately ended up, ended up becoming. Uh, and Chris is now the president of the St. Louis blues hockey team, but he had called me up. It was like, Hey, we've been trying to find a way to bring you back. We think we've got it. Would you be interested in joining? Uh, I resigned the next day and I, uh, I moved up about three weeks later and then started that 23 year journey. And you start at Nike and as we covered that, you know, the Jordan bow Agassi fab five phenomena has happened. Yeah. The Tiger Woods phenomena is just starting to happen. You know, so my way of saying, you know, Nike was doing just fine when you showed up. <laughs> and, uh, and sometimes when we get jobs at places that were doing just fine when we showed up, we're able to fit right in. And then other times we, we maybe experience that crisis of confidence or that imposter syndrome, which was more true for your experience in those early years, kind of finding your way at Nike? You know, it was, it's a, I love that question. It was actually both. Um, and part of the reason why it was both was part of the reason why they were able to figure out how to, how to uh, make the space for me is Nike had gone through probably its first or its second large reorg in its history at that time. So I was coming in um, on the backs of you know, this reorganization and some people losing their jobs and kind of people going, well, that's not when he, you know, what Nike does. So, you know, where are we headed? Um, and so, it, you know, and I think you could even kind of go back any student of, of uh, you know, uh, of that work would kind of go like, at that point, you had some changes happening at, at Nike, some of the messaging was starting to evolve. So actually was was both and really knowing the strong history of the brand, but then people kind of going and saying, is, is Nike too, too brash, too loud? You know, this was, you know, people started to walk away from the, uh, from the kind of Futura Nike logo and started to introduce the script logo. Uh, this was when, um, when Crispin or when Goodby came on board. Uh, like, you know, this was literally kind of both of those things happening at the same time. So it was a really interesting way to, to come in and go, you know, what? what is going on? What is the path forward? And how do I, as a junior member of this team, find my footing and help to contribute? Yeah. In 2006, you become global head of advertising and media planning for the Jordan brand. Um, and on the one hand, I mean, just from what you told me about your background and Spike and Mike's influence on you has to be a dream come true, but it's also a really interesting time. Mike is three years retired and as we look back in hindsight, yeah, you know, of course the Jordan brand would live on with the same cultural meaning as when he was an active player. 
But maybe that wasn't so obvious at the time because there was no precedent for a retired player, even Michael Jordan, continuing to be the face of a brand. Can you just take us back to 2006 and maybe some of the conversations you had around Mike, maybe with Mike himself about the ambitions for the future of, of the Jordan brand post-retirement? Yeah, absolutely. So at that time, so and again, kind of coming in and joining Nike as an intern and, and you know, getting to work on things like CEO Jordan, um, the, the, the start of Team Jordan, you know, with uh, Vin Baker, uh, Eddie Jones, you know, and right. You know, Right. Like people who, who are like nerds about this stuff, like just, you know, they they just immerse themselves in it. And so that type of work, you know, doing the whatever it was the DeVry school kind of, you know, doing those campaigns where you're kind of having fun about about Team Jordan. Um, you know, at that point, that was eight years, you know, from from when we did that eight, 10 years. Again, my math sucks. But um, to when I joined uh, the Jordan brand. So at that time, we were getting to a point where, where Michael had been off the court more years than he had actually played. Uh, and having that conversation with, with, uh, with Michael and going, well, look, what we need to do is, is we need to find ways to um, really set up what are those everlasting traits of the Jordan brand? Because the Jordan brand is going to live beyond, you know, uh, beyond not just when, when, you know, Michael being an active player, not just even when Michael, you know, uh, Michael's life. This thing is going to live for a long time. What are, wh how do we start to establish some of those everlasting truths? And then what are the things that we do to have, make it impactful, make it contemporary, find ways to, to have it connect with different consumers in different ways. And that was, uh, the, you know, the real, um, uh, uh, an incredible privilege and incredible honor um, to be able to do that, to work with Michael, to work for Michael and Esty and, and his team over there, um, and to really look at it holistically, um, because like you said, it's, you know, overseeing advertising, overseeing digital, overseeing media, you know, building out social, think about all the different touch points. And at that point, that type of behavior wasn't happening. And a lot of these things weren't really um, part of kind of our traditional arsenal as you know that we as as marketers have nowadays yeah i mean thinking about starting at a company in 1998 i mean you know you're at nike long before lebron is at nike and so you're growing up at this company and the company is signing athletes and the athletes and you are growing up together was yeah. was it helpful to your job to forge personal relationships and friendships with athletes or or was there actually a concerted effort on your part to try to maintain a sort of professional distance? I would say both. I think for me, it's the being able to connect with them was was important, is important. And again, they they are partners and colleagues and teammates, um, you know, in the same way that we would look at the team members that we get to work around us um, with. So. I, it was, you know, the the starstruck nature of, of uh, and even with Michael, this this happened after some point. Um, like you kind of get it, get it over the starstruck nature of, oh my God, I'm working with, you know, athlete X or athlete Y, and you really see them as a partner. You really see them as a as a team member, and you're working and collaborating to figure out the best ways to um, to to bring a story to life and to partner with them and to do things that work for them and, and do things that work for the brand. So it really is that combination of the two. There's just no way to kind of go through a greatest hits with you <laughs> of swallowing up our entire time together. But 
you know, I think about kind of campaigns pre-Kaepernick. I'll ask you about that separately, but pre-Kaepernick, you know, most valuable puppets, the Kobe system, you know, Kanye's on set. And is there one campaign that sticks out in your mind as the sort of we're never going to top this moment? You know what? There, I think at every turn, there has always at every turn, I've always felt like there's we've hit that that point. And then yet something comes and 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 does it. I know you've had um, Keith Cartwright and uh, and Ricardo Viramontes on. Um, you know they they both uh, I'm sure talked about um, Leroy Smith and the work that we all did together on that. Again, I think for any any nerd of of uh, of, of advertising and especially kind of cultural advertising, um, you know, would look at that and just the things that we did in that space. I think were 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 super cool. Um, even things that are, that sit outside of the world of advertising, we had built some, um, we'd built an, uh, a kind of, uh, in-store kind of really immersive experience. And I remember seeing a picture of Steve jobs, um, from Apple using our, using what we built as an example for, for his team. And I still have that picture somewhere. Cause like Steve fucking jobs is taking the work that we did, uh, to kind of, you know, show people why an Air Jordan 23 is so cool. And he's using that and kind of showing how the UI and the UX work really well together and, 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 you know, educating his team with that, like, you know, that's insane. Um, the, you know, the stuff that we did for the fuel band was, was incredible. Got a chance to do, you know, um, television shows, movies, all, you know, feature film movies, all of these different things. And yet at every turn, you find, you find a way to kind of uh, push it forward. And I think for me, I'm super fortunate that I've been afford that I was afforded that opportunity to just push the boundaries because at every, at every turn, when we pushed the boundaries, we found that there was a way to supersede even what was that high bar at the time. Every year you set a standard and then you get to sort of you know, if you execute to your standard, then you get to enjoy it for five minutes and then it's time to figure out what we're doing next year. And that's the burden of success that we should, you know, sort of all be so lucky to to enjoy that that specific brand of being sick to your stomach all the time that you have to meet your own standard. Yeah. But you know what? And, and it's one of those things, you know, the uh, you know, what's the what's the saying? The reward for great work is more work. Like, you know, at, at every turn, we found a way to do that. And then obviously at Nike before Just Do It, um, you know, it started as a line in, in, a, in a print ad, but it essentially became its, its signature line. And it's maybe kind of its, its, its spirit of there is no finish line. Like, and truly like that spirit of like, great, you, you, you achieve that height. There's something better. There's another thing that can come. There's another thing that you can push to. Um, and very much that, that behavior of sport was something that we always took a look at it and uh, approach the work in that way. And then Kaepernick happens. And I wonder if maybe for the first time in your career, even if you didn't voice it out loud, you think to yourself, We're like the way that this landed in culture, this probably is the real actual moment where next year's campaign won't quite do what this year's campaign did. Um, <laughs> a, lot has been, a lot has been written about that campaign. You've talked about that campaign a bunch. My question about Kaepernick is, what can you tell us about the inception or the response to that idea as an outsider that maybe you couldn't, you couldn't tell us as an insider. Yeah. Um, we've been trying to, to, to work with Colin for, for some time. Um, 
you know, when we did equality, we tried to bring Colin in and Colin, you know, to, to his credit and, and part of why I love Colin so much is Colin's like, look, I love what, what that's trying to do. This isn't exactly what my, you know, what, what my belief is, or, or I think there's the, there's a sharper articulation for myself. And I want to make sure that if I'm going to do something that it's got that articulation, it's got that sharpness of, of purpose and that sharpness of articulation. And, and, when I shared the work with him, uh, you know, when Gino and I shared the work with him, it was like, okay, this I feel good about. And so we, you know, we were off and running with Colin, which was, I think, a, a very, um, you know, one of the best uh, stamps of approval that I think you could ever have. You know, winning awards is great. You've won a ton of awards, maybe more than anyone in the past 20 years. But, you know, I think you'd agree with me, the highest prize is, is winning in culture. And anywhere you go, People are wearing Nike and kids are reinventing style around, you know, 20 year old Jordans and people are using the swoosh to signal their values and their identity. Yeah. And you're seeing this literally every day, everywhere you go, you cannot escape it. And, you know, the average person doesn't know you helped that you helped make that happen when you walk into the coffee shop. But, you know, do you recall when, if ever, during your 23 years that just that that awareness went from being surreal as fuck to just feeling normal to you? It has never felt normal. Um, I, uh, I'll tell you two little, two little tidbits, but I think for me, it's never felt normal because, and you know this, I'm a, I am a super, super private dude. I am like, keep me behind the scenes. I, you know, you know, thank you for the patience. I think the first time you asked me to do this, uh, to, to jump on was probably in 2019. So I think, uh, it's probably taken us three years to actually make this happen. Um, just cause that's not my style. I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm very much behind the scenes hidden away. Um, but two, two places where I would kind of be like at the start and kind of at the end of that, that Nike journey was, um, I remember coming home from, uh, from that internship and I was in LA and I was, um, the team, uh, had, had given me a pair of the Air Jordan 13s, which was the shoe that CEO Jordan was, was, um, was launching. Uh, and I remember wearing them about three weeks before the, the campaign launched and before the shoe launched uh, in the mall, in the Montebello town center. And I remember that a, like at some point it was almost a mob, like people had started to come out of stores to look at the shoes. Uh, and for me, it was just the most bizarre thing in the world. Um, the other one I would, I would do is, uh, or the other thing I'd say I would share is, um, I went to, you know, when I lived in Portland, Portland has the best um, breweries and beer that you could, you know, you could ever imagine. So I remember running an errand and I popped into, uh, I popped into a brewery to go and, and kind of taste what they had going on. Um, and there was a couple sitting next to me and they were, they were talking, um, they were talking about, about something. And we just started to kind of have a conversation. And then they, for some reason, they had started to, it came up that I worked at Nike. And then they asked about, about Dream Crazy. And I told them about, you know, that I've done it. And they start crying. And I'm like, just, you know, stunned. And so then they tell me, they're like, they're school teachers in Ferguson, Missouri. And, you know, the, how meaningful something like that is to them you know, because of what they do, because of how they committed their lives to helping, 
you know, the, the, the people in that community. Um, and you know, they wanted to take a picture with me and all of this stuff. And I'm just like, I can't process all of this stuff, but I'm like incredibly humbled. And you go like, that's the impact that you have, like, you know, you can have. And that's what I, what I love about our industry so much is we all have that power to make that impact. We all find ways to be able to do that in, in different ways. And for me, it's just, you know, those reminders of whether it's kind of culturally, uh, you know, with the, you know, with uh, kind of the way that, that, Jordan has kind of come to life in the world or, um, you know, what kind of maybe the more consequential impact of, uh, you know, when you, when you do work like that, like, uh, um, like dream crazy or equality or some of those other, other pieces where it just, or you can't stop us where you're going like that can truly have a trend or jogger, you know, that can truly have a transformative impact on people. Well, and knowing people use the swoosh as a marker of identity and knowing that, you will forever have a swoosh seared into your soul after growing up at this company. You know, before we even get into the McCann part of this, yeah. how did leaving Nike after over two decades affect your sense of identity? Were you were you emotionally prepared when that sort of conscious uncoupling moment arrived? I was, um, and part of the reason why was I knew that my identity wasn't baked into that company you know having having been there for that period of time i've seen people i've worked with people who their job is their identity they are who they are because of that especially at nike especially at nike absolutely um and you know there was a um there was a a, a gentleman who I used to work with, uh, Mark Tomashow, who uh, is an incredible, incredible guy. And, and I remember he, he was, we were talking about a, one of the former presidents and it's like, look, the, the minute that, that that person retires, they just go back to being another, another dude. Like there's just something about like what, you know, the access that you have in the world that you can live in. But what he, um, but I also saw the, the, the flip side of it, you know, when, when there's layoffs, and someone loses their job and they've built their whole identity based on being the guy doing that thing. Uh, and then all of a sudden the company decides that you're not that anymore. What happens to you as a person? And so for me kind of seeing that, that's, I, I knew that I could not be that person. Um, and I think for me, the, the other thing was um, after, you know, I had spent, more than half my life at Nike, you know? So at some point I was like, is this going to be the rest of my life? Or is this the time when I start to think about moving on? Um, when I got to the point of, of deciding that like, this is the time was when I looked around and um, I saw that, you know, the, 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 the people were going to be in place to be able to take over the work that we had done. You know, when you have someone like, Andy Whiteside, who is the most, you know, who worked on, on Leroy Smith, you know, with, with me or, you know, and become legendary, uh, who, you know, done, you know, a lot of the most brilliant LeBron work, you know, ever. And you look and you go, okay, Andy's going to, going to, you know, grab the helm and is, you know, it's going to lead, lead this brand forward. The team is finally in a place and, and has the, 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 the stature and the confidence to move forward. I was like, cool. I've done my job. I can walk away because this isn't, I'm not tethered to this thing. So for me, it was actually very 
natural to leave. I never felt, you know, other, other than, you know, not being able to work with, with friends every single day, I felt, I felt good about the decision and I knew that it was time. Yeah. And around, around this time last year, you joined McCann as president and global creative chairman. And, um, you know, I'm a student of the industry. I love our industry. And I'm trying to even think like, what is the closest precedent to that move? I mean, the, the closest I've come is like Wendy Clark leaving Coke to be CEO of DDB. That's sort of a flawed comparison. I mean, as you sought counsel from people who'd maybe made a similar move, was it a pretty short list? Was it a list of zero? It it kind of was. Uh, it kind of was. And I think for me, it was also the, what I, I'd seen it the other way. You know, so I'd seen, you know, Tor go from from Gray to, to Apple. Um, I'd seen, you know, different different moves like that, but not not the other way around. And the the first conversation that uh, Bill Kolb and I had, but Bill is the 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 chairman and the, the chief executive officer for McCann World Group. Um, when the first conversation that that we had, I kind of came in, I was like, I don't know, I don't know if this is gonna be for me. I spent time talking to him, hearing his vision, uh, and I loved the vision. I loved the audacity of what he was trying to do. And so I went back and I did did some work and was like, look, if I if I take the you know the badge of client and agency off, and I just look at what this role is trying to accomplish and what this organization is trying to accomplish, do I get excited by that? And when I did that exercise, I was like, fuck yeah. Like, and for me, when I did that, then I was like, all right, great. You know, I can take, I can embrace that. I can, I can continue the conversations and the exploration and really take a look. And I think for me, why it, you know, I've had a lot of people ask the question of, is it, you know, how much of a, how different a change is it? How drastic a departure is it? I've never felt like it's a big departure because in my job as a, as a client, I was really focused on helping our partners succeed. I was help. I was really focused on setting up, setting the table for our teams to succeed, and you know, bringing clarity where, where it made sense, helping to grow um, individuals and teams, and setting culture, driving the business forward, delivering against the PNL, doing all those things that kind of were, were were part of my job. I get to do the same thing here. I'm, I'm, you know, I sit in a different seat and maybe one step removed from kind of the, the decision, final decision-making process. Um, but it's a lot of the same stuff that I was doing just done in a different way. Um, and I think for me, the other part that I love is, you know, I've, I'm, I've been as much a business person as a brand person, as a creative person. And as I think about, you know, McCann World Group, and I think of all of the agencies and all the partners that we have under us, um, the ability for us to really be able to connect the dots and to, to create impact through all of those places um, became really, really exciting for me. And so for me, it, it became a, a, it was something that I, I felt good about. And especially knowing that the, the table was set for a new generation of leaders to, at Nike to succeed. Um, it felt like the time to go. Yeah, I was going to ask you how different it is. And as I started to think about that question, I was like, you know, going from huge global brand to huge global agency, there's actually probably a ton of um, managerial skills and organizational systems that are pretty that are pretty transferable. Um, so you're, you're certainly not starting from scratch. Um, but you were the client and now you're working with clients. Mm -hmm. 
And I wonder if you had any assumptions about what that would be like going into the job. And I wonder if those assumptions have been matched by the reality. I, I didn't have a ton of assumptions. Uh, I think for me, the, the complexity of our, of our clients, uh, it, you know, each client has their own deep, you know, world that they have to live in. They all have stakeholders. They all have um, challenges. And I think for me, it's, if anything, it's been just how complex some of those, um, some of those business challenges are that, are, that, that, that our clients are facing, the, the, the reporting lines and the stakeholders and, and all of those things. Um, but there hasn't been anything that's been super, super surprising. I'm six months in, so I'm still, you know, right. I'm still getting my sea legs under me, but um, I don't think that there has been anything that's really been like just super, super shocking for me. Do you ever find yourself resisting, fighting the urge with a CMO to say, you know what you should do? You should be more like Nike, like be more decisive, <laughs> be more disruptive, have a higher threshold for risk. Or was that like a pep talk you had to give yourself going and it's like, dude, you can't bring that shit into meetings. I, yeah, I try, I try to, I try to not, because I think again, it can be, uh, it, it can probably People can probably get sick of it, and or maybe they maybe some CMOS want to hear hear you say that. So, so that's the thing is is I do get asked a lot by by not just our our client partners but internal teams of like, well, how did you know when you were faced with something like this or when Nike had to deal with this business challenge, you know, how did you do it? And a lot of what I spend my time doing is talking to clients about that. You know, every a lot of our businesses, a lot of your business, you know, the, the clients that you have, they're they're in the midst of business transformation and Nike is as well. And, and being able to talk about those parallels and talk about, you know, having sat, you know, in that chair and a chair like the ones that they're sitting in, our clients are sitting in, what were the, you know, what were the things that you, that you looked at? What were the, the trade-offs that you made? What were the priorities that you set and how did you navigate the, 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 the business challenges, the shareholder challenges and the cultural challenges? Yeah. I mean, part of developing your mastery of marketing happens at Nike. And I'm going to guess the other part of it happens working with great agencies, especially Wyden Kennedy. That's another company that you grew up with. You probably grew up with counterparts over there, or you guys were 20 year old assholes together, and then you have families together, you know? And uh, I wonder, I wonder if um, there are any lessons from how you as a client worked with, with Wyden Kennedy that you attempt to sort of emulate or transfer as you forge your own agency client relationships from the other side. Yeah, I think for me, the you know, couple couple things that I was always mindful of when when I, you know, when I was at at Nike. Um, I knew that, you know, it, it's an important role, but I knew that all I was was a steward of the brand and a steward of the relationship. And, you know, this this, um, you and I can, can see each other. We're, you know, we're, we're able to chat, um, via video, but I know that this is a podcast, but one of the things that I've kept for since it came out and that I still have sitting on my desk is, you know, this, this copy of ad week from, uh, June 22nd, 1998. Uh, and it's got Dan Wyden on the cover and, and the big swoosh behind him. And it says paradise lost how Nike and Wyden grew apart. And again, that's a that's a 40 year relationship. And then you realize that like 
you are a steward of the brand, but you're a steward of the relationship. And, you know, for, for me, that was a, that was an important thing. And I keep it, you know, at my desk here at world group, uh, sitting on the top of, of, of the credenza back there, uh, because it's an important thing to remember. I think the other thing that I always remember. What is it? Sorry. What is it? What is it? What does it remind you? of? Does it tell you that people want to, people want to pour dirt on a moment, but the relationship is going to have peaks and valleys and, and, and to stay in the fight. Yeah. And, and, and to understand that you're, you're, you're equal in this. Like there's no, you know, I, I, my, the work that, that, I've been fortunate to lead didn't come because I said, oh, you know what? It's because of my greatness, we are going to do this. Uh, it's it's because, I, and I feel what I think uniquely what the approach that I personally took was um, I worked very, very closely with our teams. And I knew that my job was to um, was to help nip, nip and tuck when it made sense, to step back when it when it made sense and to push forward most of the time to push forward on behalf of the teams. I think the other part that I was, you know, was mindful of is even after 23 years, the, you know, the number of hours that I spent working on the Nike brand in 23 years is insane. And yet there's people at Widen who've spent more hours of their life working at Nike, working on Nike than I ever have, than I ever will. They're still there, they're doing that work. I have to respect that. I have to trust that that it isn't just about me, uh, and it's a it's about people. How do you how do you set people up for success? How do you how do you truly you know help people um, succeed and achieve? And and how do you deliver those those collective goals? You know, I've got three three photos in, in on that credenza, and they're all pictures of the team. You know, and and the team accomplishing. Uh, you know some some really, really cool stuff together. And I think, again, that's for me, it's just, like I said, I'm a, I'm a cog in the, in the, I'm a cog in the system. Uh, very fortunate to be able to be a cog that moves a lot of the other cogs, but I never took myself as being outside of that system or not being in service of, of those greater purposes. Yeah. Widen employees living Nike, not unlike a Nike employee or Media Arts Lab employees living Apple, not unlike an Apple employee. That notwithstanding, I would say of the many things I love about a, a career at agencies, maybe the thing I love the most is that you're always solving different problems for different brands at the same time. I love and, it. and certainly at Nike, I don't want to minimize it because you, were, sol you st were certainly solving different problems and different work streams and different products. But after 23 years thinking about one brand all the time, tell me about looking at your schedule and seeing a GM morning, a, t a GM meeting at 10 and a Verizon meeting at 11 and a L'Oreal meeting at 12 and a MasterCard meeting at two. Yeah, it, I, I love it. I, you know, I think for me, I, I feed off of, I, I'm always curious to learn. I'm always curious to kind of, you know, the, the stimulus of, of being able to kind of think in one place at, at one time and then at another place in another time. Um, or even, you know, I, I just came back from, uh, you know, from being on the road for, for three weeks and it was, you know, and each, each thing for a different reason, for a different piece of our business or our different client, you go Miami, Los Angeles, uh, London, uh, Geneva, Paris, back to London, you know, you, you know, like every one of those things is, is informing you in a different way and you're learning and you're being stimulated by it. 
and you're hopefully contributing in a positive way, and you're taking the learnings from one place to help another part of the, you know, taking taking learnings from one client and hopefully helping another client learn and grow and and uh, and hopefully that rising tide lifts all the boats. And you're stepping into something that's not, you know, there are people who've taken over big network jobs where the place was broken, the place had lost its mojo, lost its soul. You know, you were stepping into to a to an organization that had momentum over these past few years and figuring out sort of where to put your stamp, you know, where to change course, but also where to have the humility to say, oh, I see this is working. The best thing I can do over here is leave these guys alone. Exactly. And very, you know, to what I was saying a, a little bit earlier, it's you have to know where when to nip and tuck, you need to know when to, to, to lay back and you need to know when to push forward. And I think for me, the, you know, what I, what I told people kind of as, as I was going through is I spent my first hundred days really thinking about what the next thousand days were going to look like for our organization. Uh, because there's a lot of things that work really well. And what are those, what are those strengths that we have and how do we make them superpowers? What are those places that we, where we are, maybe not leaning into fully, but that we can be true leaders, uh, true market leaders or true industry leaders and even beyond. Um, and how do we just continue to expand you know, what we do, um, putting our people first and foremost and our vision of conscious inclu in, uh, inclusivity um, uh, at the center. And again, for me, ab above all else, you know, my job is to serve people. Uh, we just get to do it in a much in a much um, richer way, and and because we have such a large organization, twenty thousand people, it's how do we how do you do that at at that level of scale? Well, having worked at McCann World Group and and you know having had a front row seat for it, what I do know about your job is if you wanted to never eat or sleep again and just work twenty four seven, there is always a colleague in some global region who welcomes your help. Tell me a little bit about how you've you've worked through the process of prioritizing your day and managing your time to maximize your effectiveness in a way that doesn't kill you. Yeah, it's first and foremost, I start with what do our people need? Like there's individual, you know, we're we're blessed to have such incredible um, leaders across the organization. Um, and again, you know, you, you've come from this organization, so you know um, just kind of that the the deep bench strength that 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 we've got across across our agencies, across our regions, uh, across our offices, across disciplines, uh, because I live just you know I, I live beyond the world of creative as well, and I think for me I go well, what do those leaders need to be able to 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 drive impact across the organization, and where are the places that I need to lean in from a people perspective first and foremost. If we're good from a people perspective, then I move on to to um, to our business, and ultimately these things all connect. So then I go, okay, if we're gonna, you know, what is it? What do we need to do to spend time to shape the future? Um, if if I feel good about where where we're at from a people side, then I move on to to to, to the business side, and then I'll take a look at kind of the odds and ends. But that's kind of really the compartmentalization that I'll do for 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 the day. Each day, you know, I probably have to do more, you know, business side one day, really kind of lean in fully on people. But it's, um, you know, I, I really kind of look at it through that, that kind of 
those segments of compartmentalization because you're right it's we have so many things going on and that's what makes it so fun and you can false you know it can become quicksand really quickly because you want to jump in you want to touch all those things but we have such great people leading all those pieces of business that i don't necessarily have to dive in except for when i can add value or when people feel like you know like they need to reach out you mentioned you were hired by bill cole bill is a guy i'm i'm really proud to call a friend and yeah. I wondered, maybe tell me about just the first six to nine months of your partnership with Bill, maybe what he's taught you and maybe what you've taught him as a creative leader with a, a non-traditional pedigree compared to some of Bill's previous creative partners. Yeah, I think the, you know, the, the first thing that, that, the first thing that surprised me about Bill was, you know, that, you know, I always like to, to joke about the suits, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, he's in, um, you know, his, he's been in, you know, he's been in this business for a while, but he had a, you know, he's lived a lifetime beyond, you know, he used to work with Andy Warhol. He's uh you know, he watches more, more movies and, and, you know, is more obsessive about the, you know, the, that kind of space of creative output than, than I am. I, I just, you know, he, he watches a film every day, you know, rain or shine, whatever's going on, he, he carves out a, you know, 90 minutes to watch a new film every single day. Um, you know, the, the way that he is obsessive about um, certain, um, certain elements of craftsmanship, you know, pens and, you know, all these things, things that can be very utilitarian, but he sees the, 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 the craft in, in, in those things. And so I go, okay, cool. Like you, you see, you see the world through, through a real kind of creative lens, even if your output is the PNL. And I love that because I'm like, okay, cool. Then we can align and we can kind of go, okay, well, you know, how do we, how do we kind of take this power uh, of creativity and truly unleash it in a way that that continues to create impact for for our clients, for our team, and and for the PNL. Um, so for me, I I I vibe with with Bill, um, you know, from the very very beginning. He's the reason why I joined because I'm like, okay. I can I can get down with that, um, and then you know really getting a chance to know the rest of the team has been has been incredible because there's so many people who walk such unique paths and they all bring something um, something new to the or something to the table, and I love learning I love immersing myself in all of this stuff I you know I I mean I remember even when when you and I first first met and just learning about your background I just am always curious to 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 pull from people and to learn. Um, um, I get so, so inspired by it. And so for me, that was, that was a lot of what, you know, what this move allowed for me to do. All right, Alex. So Adidas calls McCann and they're like, yo, let's, uh, let's engage. Are you, are you even physically capable of saying yes to that? <laughs> I am, I am not even legally able to say that for a while. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me ask a different question. Since leaving McCann, have you dared to purchase a single pair of Adidas Ultra Boost just to see what all the hullabaloo was about. No, uh, I and you know, and it's not any any knock on on them or any other you know brand or what have you. I have so many pairs of shoes um, that I don't, with the exception of running shoes, that you know you got to change them out because otherwise you're going to hurt yourself. Um, I've got enough shoes to last me a lifetime, um, and so what I do is I I break out something, you know, from the 
from the closet and I just wear it until I can't wear it anymore until it's beat up. So what, a, what my, uh, what my shoe of, uh, of the moment has been is the, uh, the De La Soul dunk. Ooh. Uh, but you could see them. They're, they're beat yeah. shit. Like they are, they are shot. Um, and so they've only got a little bit. Oh, actually you can even see it's like cracked over on the side. Yeah. You know, that's like sacrilege to, to, to sneakerheads, but you know, shoes are meant to be worn. And so these only have a little bit of life uh, left in them. And then I'll just pull something crazy off the shelf and then wear that until those are shot and then just kind of keep going through until they're all, they're all gone. I didn't know we were going to show Yeah. You're not rolling into a footlocker. I didn't know we were doing a show and tell, but since you held yours up, I'm going to hold mine up. I'm, I'm oh, rocking a, a classic Hirachi, the very sort of eighties aerobics colorway. And you know what? And it works with your shirt and it actually works with your hat as well. So I, I love the, uh, I, I, love, <laughs> I love the, uh, I love the hues. I love, the, I love the color coordination you got going on. Listen, before we get to our final three questions, if you'll indulge me one more time, yeah. one Phil Knight story could be anything. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, two, two, uh, the, actually I'll, I'll, I'll do three. Um, so I think first and foremost, it's, you know, you would see Phil and, and I think you still see him, you know, certainly pre pandemic, uh, you would still see him on campus. You would see him, you know, in the, uh, in the cafeteria, he would stand in line like everybody else. He would, you know, walk around with his tray, uh, to go get his food, all of that. He'd, you know, pay with his own money. He'd do all of that. There was no, no special treatment. He didn't see himself different. He didn't sit in a, uh, you, you know. He did have a reserved table in the in the fancy part upstairs, but most of the times he would grab food from the cafeteria and just go upstairs. Um, and I think he he liked it because it you know he got a chance to kind of see the team and and engage with the team, um, you know. But he was very you know very much just kind of uh, he loved being kind of a, a rank and file member at least during during lunch hours, um, you know, sitting with him uh, and sitting with with folks or you know sitting during. Um, athlete meetings would always be a treat because he he loved he loved the athletes he loved you know the he wanted to understand what the athletes um, needed the vision that they had for their personal brands what they wanted out of their product what they wanted out of our brand efforts our marketing um, and so seeing him in those interactions he would always make the time or he would always find a way if he heard that. LeBron was on campus or Tiger was on campus or, or, um, uh, better, you know, or, or, or Serena, you know, he'd, he'd make his way to, to, to the room. Uh, and he'd, he'd always pop in, he'd sit down and he'd, he'd engage. He, he loved it. Um, and then certainly I think in terms of like, you know, we were chatting about dream crazy, like he, you know, he felt like the, you know, he, you know, I don't think anybody would look at that go and go, yes, 100% go and go. But so he spent a little bit of time thinking about it, but he's like, well, that's who we are. That's the spirit of, of, of who we are. So let's, let's, let's push ahead. He made that, uh, and he think, ultimately had to make that call. Yeah. Him and him and the board, uh, you know, it, it, that's the first campaign that I have ever been a part of uh, that went to the board for, for approval. Um, but he made the decision to actually bring it to the board because he could have seen it and just been like, oh, hell no, it's, it's not going anywhere. Um, you know, but, but, you know, credit to, to Phil, he's like, this is who we are. This is who we are. This is what we believe in. 
Uh, and, you know, that has never changed, never will. Uh, so, you know, he was, he was a key, key part of that. And, and for me, you know, that being maybe my, my last of the, of kind of those, those intimate points of connection with, with Phil uh, and, and his impact on, on the work that I specifically was, was, uh, um, was shepherding. I will always be a treat for me. All right, Alex Lopez, we end every episode with the same three questions. Are you ready? I, I hope so. All right, here we go. First one, what is the word or phrase of advertising jargon that makes your skin crawl? You know what? It's, um, whether it's something like, will it hunt? Uh, <laughs> the notion of, of uh, you know, of, uh, of an RTB, a reason to buy, anything that's, that's only focused on transaction, I hate. Um, because our work is more than that. The, the consequence of what of what we do should be that people buy, that people engage, that people, you know, uh, that we evoke action in some way. But if we start with that, you're never going to get to a great place. And so for me, it's, it's, you know, those are just two examples of any of those transactional things that people will, you know, will, will ask of the work. Will it hunt? The second question is normally phrased this way, which is, you know, uh, what is the most awful or fucked up or insulted response you've ever received to work that you've presented to a client? Now, to you, I think I'd have to flip it. I know how I want to ask this question, but I don't want to be insensitive <laughs> to some partner who presented something to you 20 years ago, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. What is the most memorably insane or awful idea an agency ever pitched to you at Nike? So the... I will say our, you know, our, our, our partners, the, you know, the folks that, that we've worked with for, for a long time, even the insane stuff, you know, has, has something that works. What I get a lot of, or what I used to, uh, you know what, I still get a lot of it, um, is people will find out, you know, what I, what I did, or, you know, at the time what I was doing. And, and these are like really talented people, but people that are just kind of, out of the blue and they go, you know what you should do? You should make this, this ad. Uh, and here's what the ad would look like. Uh, you know, you start with this person running and then they look at, they look at the camera and then they point at their shoes and you see the big swoosh and you do this. And like, like these people are coming with these horrific ideas that are all about, you know, um, how they would make a Nike ad. And you just look and you, you, you cringe and you go like, God, like there's no, there's no soul in it. Like you would hope that the, perhaps the most soulful brand, uh, you know, that, that is out there, you would find a way of presenting something that is maybe a little bit more soulful. But, you know, I, I was in a, a very famous graffiti writer. I was with him uh, in a car going somewhere. He's like, I've got an idea for the perfect night spot. And you're going shit, shit. You're going shit, 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 shit. Don't say it. Don't yeah. say it. Don't say it. Don't say it. Yeah. Oh, well, and then you even get it from athletes. Like you get all these people who kind of come up with these ideas and you're like, leave it to the experts. And even to the experts, like leave it to the people who live it every day because there's there's so much nuance that goes into it. And it's just, it's just horrible. Yeah. What's the worst pitch you ever got from an athlete is actually a really funny, a really funny uh, sub, sub, uh, subtext to that question. Oh, um, there's, there's, there's some awful ones. There are some, some terrible, terrible ones. But there you go. Like you're really good at playing your sport 
My team and I are really good at doing this. Let's trust that each other is going to do the right thing. Hey, Alex, whether you're an athlete or the coffee shop dude or your high school friend, like you got to shoot your shot when you're with Alex Lopez. <laughs> People definitely have. Uh, and the final question, you know, you seem to have made literally everything you could have ever dreamt of making at Nike. But the question is called the one that got away. During your 23 years at Nike, what was the one idea that you loved most that for whatever reason you couldn't get produced? There's a few. Uh... So there's, I am still hopeful. Well, uh, because there's so many, um, there are some, you know, you make, you know, because you're, you're trying to be really focused on, you know, being present if an athlete, if a athlete does something or if a team wins, um, we've, we've had some work for some teams that are very near and dear to my heart that are sitting, you know, in, in the, sitting in the ball, essentially ready to go. Um, and for, you know, one reason or another, people have just not pulled the trigger and actually, you know, hit launch. Um, but I'm hopeful that that, you know, some of that work is, is fairly evergreen. So uh, I'm hopeful that that will happen. We've done, we've had some incredible, we had a, a, an incredible fuel band campaign and an incredible American football campaign. And these were probably a handful of years apart from each other and actually these are probably this is probably maybe 10 12 years apart from each other and yet the same director we had partnered with and neither one of them could get done i can't name the director uh but a incredibly famous a-list director and just, if it's picture uh, wink at me <laughs> no i've worked i've worked uh, i've worked with i've worked with david a, a, a good number of times and yeah, we always find a way to get his stuff out the door. Um, never easy, but we always find a way. Um, but both of those incredible campaigns, two of the most exciting campaigns, and we still talk about them as like kind of uh, code speak, uh, you know, amongst the you know the people who worked with them, uh, Alberto Ponte, uh, Ryan O'Rourke, some of those folks, because yeah. um, it's just like you know the, those those things that got away. And then there's one that is um, very. Uh, important to 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 myself one that um i'm still hopeful will come out um you know it's it's edited it's it's a poignant um message it's one that that takes uh you know an, an old message from from nike and kind of modernizes it for a new need um i'm hopeful that 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 will eventually come out um but there are you know it, it's same thing with the you know you think of 9,000 shots of failure stuff, like you, you miss more times than you make. So there's a lot of those that, that are sitting there and you just, you never, ever know. And honestly, sometimes the best, some of the most notable Nike work came to life years after it was initially presented. Um, uh, freestyle, the basketball spot was presented two years prior by Paul yeah, and Paul, yeah, and um, uh, Jogger was presented. Um, we originally had, had drafted that up as a fuel band campaign, uh, and then we moved it over to, to Find Your Greatness because uh, it worked well for, for that. So these things always find a way. Uh, some of these, I'm hopeful, will still find a way, even, uh, even you know, in this life that I live now. 
Well, I shot my 9,000 shots texting you since 2019 to join me on this podcast, <laughs> and I'm glad I did. Um, you know, Alex, agencies love to tell brands to be disruptive and brands aspire to be disruptive. Yet when it comes time to make decisions about our careers and our lives, we often tend to play it safe and follow the expected path, especially, especially once we have a, a, a legacy to protect. Yep. For all the disruption you created at Nike, I just want to give you major props for disrupting your own career and taking on this incredibly worthy challenge of writing the future of McCann. And on a personal level, thank you for making so much of the work that made me want to do this work for a living, man. Thanks for talking thank to me today. Man. No, that's uh, incredibly kind of you. I, I uh, Again, I appreciate the patience. Oh, I'll, I'll even back it up. I, I appreciate the partnership. We had done some, some really cool stuff. I do have I do have the Grand Prix that we were that we went up and, and collected. I know you've got a copy of it. I've got one. I've got one sitting right there. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, but the work that came out of that was really special. I appreciate the patience because, uh, again, I think it was three years that you were trying to to, to get me on this. So I appreciate you uh, being patient. It, it took a, a gentleman by the name of Drew Greer to to finally get me to to do it. He's like, look, you got a story, you know. People, people that came from where you came from don't, you know, people don't see them. You gotta, you gotta get out there and 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 talk about it. Um, so he's the reason. If you ever, if you ever come across Drew Greer, he's the reason why Nike is so so cool and its history. Uh, anybody should go look him up. But he's the reason. Uh, um, you can thank him if you ever come across him. Um, you know, and and again, thank you for 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 this as well. I, you know, going on and seeing all the people who you've had. I know about half of them. I've worked with half about half of them. And I, I love that part of the industry is that for it being such a large industry, it's such a small, um, very cool, very collaborative group of people who have a lot of mutual respect for each other. And I appreciate you creating the space for it. Can't wait to see what you do next. Best of luck, brother. All right, man. Appreciate it. Okay. See ya. All right. Thank you to the great Alex Lopez. Thank you, as always, to JSM Music and the executive producer of this podcast, Mr. Jeff Fiorello, who happens to be editing this episode from his honeymoon. So how's that for dedication? And also, sorry, Mrs. Fiorello. As always, folks, if you're liking the pod, please subscribe, rate, review, share it with a friend or colleague. And until we talk again, peace.